Welcome back to the Flow Performance Podcast. My name is Ricky Dan, founder of Flow Nutrition and your host. On today's episode, we chat with one of my biggest business and entrepreneurial inspirations, the founder of Anti-Ordinary, Rob Joseph. Now, this chat, without a doubt, is one of my favorites so far. Rob has one of the most inspiring stories, and I am genuinely honored that I'm able to share it with you all. Rob is the founder of Anti-Ordinary, and if you're not familiar with the brand, they are a brain protection company that have innovated and essentially invented the world's first beanie helmet. Yep, that's right, a beanie helmet. It is freaking epic. At the moment, they are mostly for on the slopes and at the snow. So if you're a skier or a snowboarder, I'd definitely recommend checking out their website at antiordinary.com or at least checking out their Instagram or some of their YouTube videos just to see how cool this tech really is. Outside of the business, Rob is a fellow flow state junkie who has a passion for everything action and adventure, particularly motocross, downhill BMX, wakeboarding, and snowboarding. Most importantly though, he is genuinely one of the best blokes you will ever meet, and I feel so lucky to call him a mate. In this episode, we dive into Rob's relationship with flow state and action sports, his founder story with Anti-Ordinary, and how he went from an engineering student with no background or knowledge in business to the position he's in now, flying around the world, selling out of helmets, and literally shaking up the whole helmet and brain protection industry. We also discuss the highs and lows Rob has experienced as an entrepreneur and the lessons he's learned scaling and growing anti-ordinary to where it is today. To sum it up, his story is about curiosity, persistence, passion, and finding a way. It's stories like Rob's, which is literally why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place. This chat is incredibly valuable for anyone interested in personal development, entrepreneurship, or simply anyone that wants to be truly inspired by a regular Aussie bloke from Brizzy who is taking on the world and saving lives in the process. Whenever I catch up with Rob, I always leave feeling so pumped and optimistic for my own pursuits. Every time I see him, I literally just cannot wait to get home and start working even harder on my own business and to grow Flow Nutrition. His passion is contagious and there is no doubt you're going to feel that during this chat. Lastly, just a reminder, if you find this episode valuable and want to support the podcast, don't hesitate to give it a five-star rating, share it with a mate, or post it up on your Instagram story and tag the Flow Performance Podcast. Without further ado, we're going to dive into today's episode, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat with the founder of Anti-Ordinary, Rob Joseph. Today, I'm out at the Anti-Ordinary headquarters here in Brizzy uh, with the founder and the one and only Rob Joseph. Rob, how are you doing, mate? Well, mate, how are you? Very, very good. Um, There is so much I'm keen to chat with you about today, um, so we may as well dive straight into it. Um, I wanted to start off with the theme of the podcast, which is obviously Flow State, uh, and I wanted to explore sort of your relationship with Flow. So... Who is Rob Joseph and how does he experience flow state? Yeah, so I, I'm Queensland boy, South East Queensland born and raised. Um, grew up, actually my first love was riding motorbikes, 
was the first thing. So, so got into that at an early age and then just action sports all the way from there. Um, played a lot of traditional sports too, of course, but um, it was always the dangerous stuff that really that I really enjoyed. And uh, as a teenager, got into wakeboarding quite a lot, used to compete um, at a cable. Um, and then later in life sort of came to being part of Anti-Ordinary. We make snowboarding and skiing helmets that are beanies. Um, and yeah, and so I, I guess as an action sports kid, I've always craved that flow state, I suppose. And it, it, it's important. And I've always had a brain that runs pretty quick. You know, I've always got a lot of things bouncing around, good or bad. And um, I've always found, particularly dirt bikes early on, is that, you know, when you're dodging trees at 80 kilometers an hour, there's really not much space for other thoughts. And I think that's when I feel the most calm and relaxed is that like at that pace, where it be on a snowboard or a wakeboard or whatever it is, if you, you know, the only thought is survive, get through this, then there's, it's the most relaxing which is a really odd feeling. It's a bit of a dichotomy, but I, I think that's what it is to me. Well, that's what everyone reports in action and adventure sports. That's what creates or or forces you into flow state is that risk aspect where like I feel that in surfing and it's why the reason I surf is for the barrel because that's arguably like the most dangerous part. And if you're not in the moment, you're either going to eat shit or you'll have the best time of your life. And I think that's that's to me what action sports sort of brings out and how it brings out flow state. Um, what sort of dirt bike, what sort of motorbike stuff? So early days was, was motocross and then had a couple of pretty big crashes. It was never very good. Motocross, is that like, around the track? Like, yeah, around the track yeah, with the jumps yeah. and everything. Did yeah. that. Never got to the stage of racing. Um, had a few pretty big incidents and, and, and mum sort of put, a, put an end to that. Um, and then be, became a bush kid. So, so running trail rides, um, enduro, that kind of thing was sort of where I ended up. And, and it was so, I, I do a little bit more motocross now, but it, it's definitely you know, pretty handy in the bush, pretty quick. Um, and that's just where my autonomy is. Is it like, I'm not thinking about anything at that stage. Is this, you know, before you have a chance to think about doing the thing, you're already doing the thing and that's the safest way to be. Yeah. I've got a couple of mates that do um, downhill BMX and they yeah. say exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's just that the way they described it was they can almost predict the future. Like they know where every turn is and they, they're not thinking about what they're doing in the moment. It's like they know three turns ahead where they're going to be and, and the movement and the body movement they need to be doing. And it's a really interesting thing to listen to people describe like what flow state is to them because some people say their brains are super active and some people say their brains are switched off. And so it sounds like yours is more switched off in flow state in action sports but then maybe in day-to-day life a bit more switched on and like going round and round <laughs> yeah oh absolutely i mean it's one of those things like particularly in dirt bikes but i ride a lot of you know downhill mountain bikes as well yeah. and it is when you're going slow you your wheel falls into every little rut every little drop whatever it is and when you're looking at it you look where you go so if you look at all the big rocks that are super scary you're likely to go, go straight towards them but once you get to a certain level of like trusting your ability and you're autonomous just jump over the top of them, you know, and the faster you go, you lift the front wheel and the, the rear wheel just skims through and you don't even notice it's there. Whereas if you went, you know, 30% slower, it would be a huge issue. Yeah. But if you're going quick, just go straight over the top and it's not an issue. And, and that's a big thing in a lot of these action sports is the harder you commit, the easier you are, the easier it is. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, that's amazing. I, I don't have any experience in motocross or even like wakeboarding stuff. And so with the helmets though, that sort of has been derived from snowboarding. So when did you sort of start snowboarding and how did that become introduced being a, a Queensland Brizzy boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would have been 17 the first time I snowboarded. It would have been the, the, uh, the school ski trip. And by that stage, I was a pretty advanced wakeboarder and being a cable wakeboarder, we, we wear helmets because there's rails and jumps and that kind of thing. And I had a helmet that I used to compete in, you know, the nationals and that kind of thing. And, and the, the way the helmets anti-ordinary came about was I took that helmet that I wore every single day, riding wakeboards in comps, everything to the snow and just hated the thing. 
I'd never had a problem with it ever before. It's from a reputable brand, pretty good helmet, took it to the snow and just got so frustrated with the thing I took it off. And then I had a huge crash. Like, you know, New Zealand, I went to Coronet Peak. It was a, it was a windy, icy day and it hurt. And it was, it was a big incident. And um, I realized it was dumb not to wear a helmet, but also realized nobody really wants to wear one. And you look around in New Zealand, Australia in particular, like we, we don't wear helmets a lot. And it's like, well, why is it even a choice? So you, these days you, you drive a car, you put your seatbelt on. There's no, no question. Why are we still questioning putting helmets on? Because I would say like, I'm much more likely to, to um, fall off a snowboard than I am to crash a car. But for some reason, helmets were just so jarring that people were still choosing not to, to like choosing to risk their lives. Yeah. Well, mate, I can I can relate so much to that because I I hate to admit it, but I, I hate wearing a helmet. Um, I haven't worn yours yet, so that hopefully is <laughs> about to change. Um, but I, to be honest, I only wear one when I'm doing jumps or when I'm in the park. I for some reason, when I'm just free skiing or, or snowboarding. Um, on regular t- terrain, I always wear a beanie. I, I know I should be wearing a helmet. And in my head, it's more like, oh, if I'm going to hurt myself, it'll be on a big jump or on a box or a rail. But just, I think we, we spoke about New Zealand. I was over there um, a little while ago. And my biggest crash, my one big crash, was when I was just free riding. It wasn't, I was going on the XL line at, at Cadrona. I was doing the park. I was on boxes and rails and didn't fall at all. And my fall was on the most mellow terrain, was unexpected. I was lucky I didn't hit my head because I didn't have a helmet on. But, yep, yeah, fractured two ribs. <laughs> uh, but So kind of lucky. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a crazy mentality because I know I should be wearing it, but I just hate how it's it's sort of... I don't know how to explain it, but it feels like you're not experiencing the full environment that's around you. It's like you're just condensed into your own little helmet and you're so restricted to all the outside elements, like the sounds and the feelings. And I don't know. I just don't like how it restricts me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just described the entire thing. The, yeah. the entire part of the reason why we built it is, is that, yeah. you know, like riding dirt bikes, wearing a full face helmet, it's quite restrictive, but you don't feel restricted on a dirt bike wearing a full face helmet. And okay. often See, I've, I've never experienced same. that. So I, it, it, but then you get to the snow and the entire thing is about being free yeah. and being on the mountain and, and experiencing all of it. And there's something about that helmet experience that just doesn't align with that feeling. And, you know, like I'm incidentally very anti safety equipment for the most part. Like I, I ride a, a motorbike to and from work. It's not far, but in a shirt and shorts and, and shoes, you know, like, I, and I'm wearing a helmet and glasses, you know, like when I'm riding dirt bikes, I'm not wearing long sleeve dirt bike jerseys i'm wearing t-shirts because i like a lot of the time i just don't see the benefit but of course helmets have such a big benefit but unfortunately they can really detract from the experience and that's sort of a lot of what the design elements of our helmet comes from is like how do we eliminate that lack of freedom that you feel inside of a helmet absolutely and i I think i'm your perfect customer because all the things (laughs) you've explained there i can just relate so much and I, th- I think it's also because my background is mostly in surfing mm. and surfing, like I wear nothing but board shorts. Yeah. There is nothing else restricting you from you and the ocean, especially headwear. Like headwear is becoming a little bit more prevalent in big wave surfing, especially reef breaks. Like we've found that in, in Chopu. So all the women wear, um, wear helmets at Chopu and Pipeline. Some of the men now are starting to do it. Um, but it's, I don't know, I think because I've been brought up surfing, having no 
uh, safety equipment at all and then going into snowboarding where I'm like, it's pretty similar to surfing, but why do I need a helmet? It's it's ice, it's water, it's it's snow. Like, um, So yeah, mate, I freaking love the idea. Can we dive a bit more into that? So um, anti-ordinary, you've come up with this idea. Um, lots of people have really good ideas, but very few people take that action to actually bring that into fruition so i have so much respect for people that actually get past that first stage of this would be sick um what were those very first initial steps or action that you had to take before uh yeah you started essentially yeah it was a big one so i sort of had the idea on a university ski trip it would have been 2016 so july 2016 pretty much um sat on the idea for a couple of months and then just sort of got more and more keen about it. And, and I was doing medical engineering at the university at the time. So sort of started really researching going, oh, is this possible? Is this possible? And once I sort of convinced myself in my own mind that it's like, yes, this could happen. So, okay, great. And, and like from an engineering perspective, like I believe nearly anything's possible. You can build just about anything you like with enough, you know, we put people on the moon, we can you know, build a baby helmet, you know, we can figure that out. And so it's a kind of Elon Musk thing. It's like, we'll figure it out. We'll do it. It's okay. Um, but the important part of, I guess, a lot of business is you got to run a business behind it. You know, like it, it would have cost most companies, you know, three or $4 million to build what we've built now. And to be able to put that case forward to go, Hey, we need money to do this. You need to go, okay, this is going to make an investor money on the way out. And so a lot of the learning wasn't necessarily from an engineering design perspective. A lot of the learning early on was how do we run a business? How do we, how do we wrap a business around saving people's lives? that allows us to do it at the most efficiency. And that was, you know, early days we sort of came together and, and had a business partner at the time, sort of brought him on r- right at the start. Um, and we just started learning. We started going to all the events. Like in, in, in Brisbane, there was a lot of startup events at the time, meeting the people, networking, getting advisors, mentors, that kind of thing. Um, and just started stepping through it. Um, from there, we did a bunch of pitch competitions, won a little bit of money and put the money down on our first patent. And then from that first patent, we um, then spent a little bit of money getting some um, you know, 3D renders and doing some imagery and that kind of thing and just building this business case. Um, and then I went on a Kentucky trip with my girlfriend at the time because um, we knew like, oh, this is the last time. That's going to be struggle for a number of years. Yep. This is the last time I'm going to have some freedom. Um, went and then met an investor. Um, but he's a director, one of our really good mates, Matt. Met him on a train in Austria um, that had broken down. And um, he became our first investor probably six months after that. A couple more followed. And um, yeah, just wound the throttle on from there. That's amazing. Can we just dive um, into more of the actual helmet itself or beanie helmet? We've been throwing those two words around so far. Mm. Um, Can you just paint a picture to the people listening? They can't see all the beanie helmets currently in this room. (laughs) Um, What actually have you created? Is it a beanie or a helmet? Well, that's the thing. It's something different to both. You know, it's it, so the, the whole design thing was we wanted to. If you weren't going to wear a helmet, you'd wear a beanie, just like you do. You, you know, you want to be warm, you want to be comfortable. So a beanie is what you do. But the problem with the beanie is it's not safe. So the whole point was instead of trying to make helmets more comfortable, why don't we make beanies more safe? And that was the design element we came from. So it's effectively so it uses some traditional but mostly non-traditional helmet materials in a way that's incredibly non-traditional. Like we've got two patents on the design. The the whole thing is made up of about eighty-five different parts. And the point of that is so it flexes, it moves. And so when it goes on your head, it stretches around your head like the way a beanie would. And it it sits lower on the head. There's a lower center of gravity. So when it sits on your head, it doesn't feel like a helmet. It feels much more like a beanie with a bit of mass to it, of course. Um, But it also maintains those safety elements of a a helmet in that, you know, you hit the ground, it's going to protect you. It's not going to blow apart. And, you know, we just got certification yesterday, international certification yesterday. And the drop test results have the best safety rating that we've seen from any helmet anywhere in the world in our category in cycle as well. 
So not only does it, you know, go on your head and fits really well and that kind of thing, it's also protecting your brain really, really well. And that was a critical part of both, just trying to marry those fit, feel, comfort, look, but safety at the same time. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Can I just, yes, probably the first question is, you know, I'd be I'd be even surprised if a big dog like Oakley with their capital, with their potential they could invest, if they even came out with something like this, I'd be like, damn, like that's pretty cool. But how have you guys done that as a small startup in freaking Brizzy? How have you innovated all of that on, on your own? Yeah, with great difficulty, I think it's probably the answer. Um, yeah. It's one of those ones where it, it was almost better, and not in all cases, but it was almost better we were isolated from the industry all the way here in Brisbane because when you speak to people in the industry, they go, no, no, you can't do it that way. Go, okay, why not? They go, because that's not the way we do things. Yeah. Okay, cool. What if we would do it a different way? And so from all the way over here in Brisbane, we sort of got this un-fettered un, sort of look at what did we want it to be? Not what would the industry like or what would, what's the way it's always been done. So we, you know, we, we just sort of started off with that and with the design tenants that we wanted. You know, we wrote on the big whiteboard, like what's the important things for this and what's going to make, what design elements do we need to make the business work as well? And we just started with that and just sort of chipped away. And, and you know, getting capital was really tough. Getting in the industry was really tough. Getting customers is really tough from here in Brisbane, but it made us work harder. And because we've worked so hard for that knowledge and so hard for that design over six years, it's been forever, um, we now know it back to front. You know, we've, we've had nothing given to us and take nothing for granted in that regard, but it means we have to know it back to front. We have to know everything. We have to know every part of the design, every cost, every you know, manufacturing line, every customer, every channel, every competitor, partner, everything. And we've had to do all that because we've had to, not because someone goes, oh, these guys are competitors, go do that. And so it's been, while it's been really hard to be isolated, sometimes that isolation has really helped in that regard. And then it's just chipping things off. It's like, okay, we need to design, design a helmet. Great. Just one thing. Okay, that one doesn't work. So we'll change that answer. But then that ruins everything else. Okay, so go back to the start again and, and try again. And it's just really iterative. Takes forever. And COVID didn't help, of course, as well. Oh, so, um, yeah. So where do you start? Because you don't have a template. You don't have a guide. You don't have something to go back to and say, this is what Oakley have done or this is what a big brand has done. Like, how do you, where do you start in that whole process? I know you've got an engineering background. Yeah. Has that helped quite a lot? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. It's, so engineering, while it's a wonderful degree, it's a way of thinking. Mm, I and like that. so, and business is a lot the same. It is, we have a number of assumptions we want to get to an output. Let's start testing assumptions. And so the first thing is you look at what everyone else is doing and you're, okay, so they're all cool. Now we know everything about what they do and then figure out why they don't do what we're trying to do. Yep. And that's an important part of the process because you go, well, sure. they have the, they have the capability of doing this. They've got the capability, more capability than us, hundredfold, plus money, plus resources, plus people way smarter than us. But why don't they do it? And for us, we found out it was actually a business model thing. So great, there's not actually a design issue here. And so what you just start doing is, is start with what they have and go, okay, so how can we adapt that to do what we need? And then we start building through that. And then so every time you go, okay, so how can we innovate here? How can we innovate here? Is it important to innovate here? It's like, okay, like with the chin straps of the helmet, we went through this big design process. Like how do we change chin straps? Okay, wait, do we have to? Chin straps work. Go, great. No, we don't. So let's just tick that one off, steal that from other designs, chuck it in. But what do we need to innovate on? And you focus on those things and then you combine them all and hopefully it works. Damn, I like that. I like that. It's just a really critical thinking 
way to approach it. And it's funny you say your, your engineering degree, you don't, you know, it's not about the engineering, it's about the way of thinking. That's what I explain to people with PhDs as well. It has nothing to do with the actual research that you're conducting. The main lessons are in your ability to critically think and analyze and yeah. and synthesize literature and understand it. And, and that's really cool because I... Never would have guessed that. I just thought engineering degrees were like, here's your freaking maths. Your, yeah, your, you're a nerd your, now. Your go physics. nuts. <laughs> yeah. So no, that's that's really cool. Um, and so let's say let's say you've got a massive whiteboard of all these things you've just spoken about. You need to make this thing now, right? <laughs> Where do you go from there? Like I've, as we've just discussed earlier, I've started having some um, some more involvement with manufacturers for our own products, our nutritional bars, which are coming out very soon. Just a little, little plug. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> same. It's been a while. <laughs> um, how do you go like nutritional bars exist? So I haven't had an issue emailing these guys going, this is what we want. Where do you start with, is it, is it an email saying, Hey, helmet manufacturer, this is what we want to do. How do you go about that? And what did you sort of do? Yeah. So ours was super convoluted. Um, and so we, we used a design team here in Brisbane who were excellent, really, really good. Um, and then we got to a stage of looking for factories and we were left with a choice from here in Australia is, do we want to manufacture in Australia? The answer was yes. We tried really, really hard to build here. Um, I said, okay, great. Who can manufacture it for us? And because we largely use plastics and foams and they're all moldable things, we can do all that here. But it was a question of the manufacturers here didn't know how to build a helmet. They don't have drop testing rigs. They've never really done this before. So we could spec them a number of things, but there'd be a lot of question marks and it all coming together. Just out of curiosity, are there any normal regular helmets made here in Australia or is that all a US thing? Not or? to my knowledge. You know, there's there's a couple of manufacturers in America, a couple in Europe, um, like Bollet do it in Germany, I'm pretty sure. But for the most part, it's the same four factories in China. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in wow. Guangdong, all of them, you know, they, they all make, like we've been to the factory the first time and we gave them the designs like, hey, guys, do you want it? Like, can you build this for us? And they go, that looks like a lot of effort. How about you have this helmet that's a competitor from two years ago? We'll chuck your name on it. Go, no, 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 that's not the point here. That's, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we're not trying to be an Alibaba brand. We're not trying to be like everyone else. <laughs> we're trying to genuinely make change. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the process as well is you've you got to find these manufacturers. And, and, and lucky for us, it's concentrated. Um, so we worked with a team in, in Australia. Um, Tried to work through some manufacturers, didn't quite work. Then we got put onto a, a group in China. There's a, a bunch of Englishmen who worked in China, R&D engineers. We worked with them for a little while. Then sort of COVID hit and they bailed really fast, which shook us to our core because we were like, we hadn't really paid you yet. Like, why are you leaving? Um, and they, they go, oh, look, something's happening. We've got to go, but we've left you with Jack, who's a factory rep. Yeah. And they're like, but he's the best factory rep we've ever met. And we're like, okay, hope so. Because um, this, this is like the week before COVID hits. Like this is like all crazy. And it all made sense once COVID hit because they just knew before we did because they were in China. Um, but yeah, now we deal with a guy called Jack who, who's worked with some of the big brands for decades and he liaises with the factories for us. So he's kind of like our middleman in between. And um, he's been great. So because we chose to deal with the helmet manufacturers, they have all the engineers on hand, they have testing rigs, they have all this stuff and they've got all the knowledge of every helmet they've bought, they've built for the last decades and their supply chain is really strong because of that. And so we did have to change our design quite a lot to suit what they could build because we brought something that was like totally new, totally innovative. And we go, Hey guys, build this. And they go, nah, we can't. We just, we don't have access to the materials. We're going to change our processes too much. And these guys are bumping out 400,000 helmets a month. And so we're trying to build a thousand and they go, look boys, you're just not worth the effort. 
And so we go, okay, great. We're going to have to sort of mold into what you guys need. And that was like a second design phase after that. It was a huge learning for us. And an advice I'd give to anyone is like, figure out who you want to build it first, then design around what they can do. Because because like they de-risked us so aggressively by using these really good manufacturers who build everybody else's helmets, supply chains, everything. And they had the knowledge, but they just were unwilling to bend to what we needed to do. So we did a huge design change and that was fine. It's come out better now because of it, which is excellent. Um, but that was a big time period for us. Bloody hell. You know, as you were just talking about that, I just finished um, Phil Knight's book, Shoot, Shoot Dog. Great book. And I was just thinking, dude, this sounds exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like all those stories of him heading over to his, Japan. Japan, yeah, Japan. yeah, yeah. But it just sounds nuts. Like here I am thinking it's difficult talking with my first manufacturers were in Burley. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh, I've got a 10-minute drive to a manufacturer in Burley <laughs> to chat with them about it. This is a whole new ball game. Like you're talking different time zone, different freaking language yeah. like there must be so many challenges involved with that yeah yes and no i mean jack's really good he speaks great english um he's our guy and he's yeah. just like the, the luckiest factory rep any anywhere like the guy the r&d guys in china were like we're leaving with jack he's better than we are like he's great and not often does a supplier tell you that um but yeah he was just a g um always looks after us but yeah it's tough you know like covid was really hard for that because had we been manufacturing down the road we could have jumped in a car and fixed it but because we were doing like some really heavy it's like the last 10 percent of design where everything starts sort of like like everything works okay the last 10 percent of stuff that fail so you need to fix that okay so that thing we fixed the next thing broke the next thing broke but the thing normally you'd go to china you'd sit on the factory floor you'd make a change it'd be like a two-hour turnaround you go great fix let's move on but because we couldn't do that so we'd test something, it would break. It'd get sent to us. They'd take photos, they'd send it to us, week turnaround, two weeks turnaround because of COVID. We'd look at it, go, okay, great, let's change this, this, and this, send it back to them. They make the changes, they test it again, and hopefully it doesn't break. So suddenly what would have been a, a two-day turnaround on, on a change ends up being a month, and it's the middle of COVID. So it's like that really hurt us that we couldn't just like fly down the road, get on the machines ourselves, and start doing stuff. But in the same way, like we tried our best, like I was saying before, like we could get tooled samples back from China faster than we could get an email back from someone in Australia. And so like we tried so hard here. Like Unfortunately, we had money I, I understand. Feeling <laughs> the same thing, man. Yeah, like it, it's, it's really tough. And yeah. like it's just the way that it is at the moment. And you got to find you, the people who are good, but there's pros and cons of local versus non-local and they've just got to stack them up against each other. Damn. That, so you're making some pretty big business moves as we're talking there like there's some pretty big things how how do you go from just not just studying engineering but how do you yeah. go studying engineering with no business experience prior to that none nothing I mean, mum and dad ran a business okay you know like an engineering business so yeah. i wasn't really involved and you know as i mentioned earlier like there's there's a big there's a big difference between having an idea as you're a uni student and going oh yeah boys this would be sick but then there's taking action flying to bloody China and doing things like I'm super curious to know like how you went from simply just studying engineering to making all these big business moves like how did you go with the transition from your studies and your work to your business um how did that like initial time frame look like back before COVID yeah right so we were what was it 2016 had the idea 2017 started the company and then so started really cracking away at it while still studying, while still, I was just working a dream. It was just a casual job. Did that for about 12 months just before Christmas. And then that Kentucky trip, I quit my job and like, okay, we're going, we're going to go at anti now. Had a little bit of money saved, but you know, like, yeah, it was like three or four grand pretty much, you know? Um, but I was a kid, like I was living at home. I was you know, 20 or something. Like it was fine. Um, 
but yeah, like a lot of it is like, interestingly, it's a lot like action sports. It's like just this cascading risk is that like, you, you know, you're a surfer, dude's out doing aerials or even like you run in the XL park at Kadrona. Like I look at that and go, that's nuts. Because I can't really ride park that well. I would love to. I don't ride it well. <laughs> yeah, well, you do it. You do it. And, yeah, it's a huge gap. And, and there's consequences to that. Yeah. But to you, you're kind of like, oh, just pin it and it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And so like a lot like action sports, is a lot like business where you just take these little steps and then you get to a stage where people go, whoa, how are you doing that? And you go, well, no, it, it was, a, you know, three years of little steps. And, you know, quitting the job was a big thing, but also I was like, you know, I was 20, I was pretty employable. I could run on the smell of an oily rag. Like the risk wasn't that high. And then you start running, you start running out of money, but you got to be in it to win it. You get, so I'm always of the opinion, like there can't be a plan B. You have to be full throttle, burn all the boats. Because if you have a plan B, you'll step back from it. And so like, that's that, you know, you quit your job and then you just work full time at it. And the harder you work at it, the more lucky you get with the people you meet and all that kind of thing. And, and so it just sort of like, it's hard to explain it, but you just like wake up every morning and do the thing and take every chance you can, every risk you can, because eventually it'll just start like all building a picture. And then you end up, you know, like I've moved overseas with four days notice and all that kind of thing. Like that seems wild, but like after six years of taking tiny little steps, that risk doesn't seem so bad because the outcome of it is goes sick. Like that's worth it. So you just got to do it. No, it's it's like, that's exactly what I needed to hear right now. That's, that is amazing. (laughs) And it's such a common theme that going all in. And I don't know if you know a guy called Nick Bear. Yeah, yeah, I've heard he's the an name. American American guy has a big business, Bear Performance Nutrition. Yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a hybrid athlete. He's a big role model of mine, not for his physical stuff, but his business stuff. He documents everything online on YouTube, and his thing is going all in on life and every choice you make. And because I've, I don't think I've ever half-assed anything in my life. <laughs> I either go all in or I don't touch it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've even met. Like LSKD, Jason Daniel. Jason Daniel. Like I met him run one day. Cool guy. And the one thing that I learned from him, he was like, mate, I was working. I think he was like a chippy or something for like ten years while LSKD was like just his second thing. And he said, mate, once I quit that and went all in, things just took off. And it's such a common theme once you've you've made that leap. But I feel like it's just a thing that. I don't know. Like, I understand that some people aren't in a position where they may not be able to um, uh, not look after themselves, but they wouldn't be able to, um, like, financially. What am I, what am I trying to say? Yeah. Um, like, not in a position to quit at all because they've, yeah. you know, they've got kids or a mortgage or something and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How did you go about, like, because obviously it was a grind for those years. Yeah, man. How did you, how did you get through that? Like, it would have been tough. Oh, for sure. Like, four months ago. And like we're sitting in the office right now, four months ago, I was pouring concrete on a job site. And that was after going to America twice, selling out twice, doing insane amounts, like raising money, all this kind of stuff. We're at C- series, like, no, we're at seed round. We've raised over a million dollars and I'm still pouring concrete. You know, like, it, it, and there's a lot of things people are like, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that. It's like, you probably can, in fairness, but you just got to want it enough. And if you don't want it enough, that's fine. But, you know, and yeah, if you've got kids and house and that kind of thing, it's a little bit different. And, you know, I was lucky I was 20, so I didn't have much rolling mass. But also I'm 27 now and don't have much other than like, you know, I don't really own much. All my friends have jobs. A lot of them getting married. Like, I don't have that. But I have this. And it's like, well, I was willing to give all that up for this, you know, and and I think that's one of those things. But, you know, like Jason Dage is a great example. Like a Southeast Queensland boy, Mm. motocross guy. Mm. Same with Peter Hull from Fitstop. 
they're all you know motocross kids and like it's it, it, the translation of action sports to entrepreneurship is really interesting because again like the motocross guys they're doing 120 foot jumps to most regular sane people that is insane but when you go from a 90 footer to 100 footer to 120 footer you're kind of like that's ah, not such a big deal and so and that, that's why i think there's such this propensity for business amongst the action sports community because we understand this like commit commit hard like do all your research think about it be diligent but when the time comes just to like wind the throttle on or like pin it down the mountain, do that and nothing else can be in your brain at that exact point because that's all. And it's better to overcommit than undercommit. You know, like you jump in the XL park, if you're knuckling, your knees are in strife. But if you go 10 foot longer, you're still on the down ramp. So go long. I've never thought of those parallels between action sports and entrepreneurship. I've, I've definitely seen it in the ultra space, yeah. ultra marathon runners, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ironman, like... A lot of those events, I swear every second person either owned a business, they're an entrepreneur, they're, yeah. they're a millionaire or billionaire they're from masochists. something. And I, I really understand that connection because to me, like, you know, I've ran some ultras yeah. before. and you're not bad. But like, and I've got very little experience in business, but I can already see the parallels with like the the feelings, the emotions, the, the, the shit you go through in an ultra marathon is so similar to business. And yeah. it's just the people that like, hold on, find a way, they sort of accept that shit's going to happen and it's not about, oh, no, this has happened. It's just straight away, what are we going to do to troubleshoot that? Yeah. I think that's the mindset that, like, the ultra community are really good at and that's probably why they're so good at business as well. Yeah. But I've never thought of the action sports stuff with just pure risk-taking. <laughs> that's, that's, but it, it's everything, you know? Like, it's just, yeah. like, with the ultra guys, it's just, you know, I, I remember we were having a particularly dark time and there was no money left and... I think my co-founder had left and that kind of thing. And I was talking to mum, like pretty emotional on the phone. And um, I was like, oh, look, I just, like, I just don't know how we can keep going. And she was like, why wouldn't you keep going? I was like, oh, there's no money. And she goes, money isn't required for you to keep going. Like you can find money, you can go work, that's fine. But why does a company have to stop? And I was like, oh. And she's like, the company only stops when you, when you tell it to stop. So if, even if you've got no money, if you're not saying, hey, we're done, we're not done. And uh, that was very poignant for me because mum's a business owner, has, has, you know, mum and dad own a business together. And um, it's just like, sure, there's no money, but like, why would that stop you? That's incredible to have that sort of support coming from. Oh, I have the best that parents is, that's in the world. Huge. I just, like a, a lot of luck is what you're born into. Yeah, after that, a lot of it's up to you, you know, but I'm so lucky to have the parents I have. Like just incredible. Couldn't do it without them. It's just silly. Like, like I can imagine it would be stressful for them to see the kind of shit that I get up to. But there's always like, no, go do it. Like, go. Be, yeah. you know. oh, mate, I think your mum needs to be, meet my mum because I think she's gone through the exact same thing <laughs> with a brother as a pro golfer that's still trying to trying to really yeah. make it. And, you know, I was having this chat with him, with my brother the other day about successful, especially successful sports people. They are just simply the ones that don't give up. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's 30 now and he's... There's this mindset around like, okay, he thought he'd be in a different position when he gets to 30, he'd be on a different tour or something. Yeah. But it's just like, find a way. Like my mum, once again, I think I've, I think she's the best mum in the world. But mums can fight over but, that one. But yes, yeah, same thing. Like she's just like, while you have the support of us, like just keep going yeah. and don't yeah. stop. Like that's. A lot of us do you die. Like I, I like that. I, I know it's a little bit like hoity-toity in, in, the, in the ether, but like, do you die? Does anyone die? No. I'll give it a go. 
Like where where's the negative outcome? Like you might lose some stuff, great, but you might also win a lot of stuff. And if you're scared of losing stuff the entire time or, or whatever it is or losing time, you'll never do anything good. Because if you're scared of that the entire time, then you'll never put a step forward. But that's not what the point is. I'm a big fan of, um, have you hear, I think it was Tim Ferriss, he had fear setting. He did a TED talk on, instead of goal setting, it was fear setting. And basically, he just said, write down like every possible thing that could go wrong, like even worst case scenario, and then write some sort of contingency plan to get you back to yeah. to, to the status quo. And he just said, yeah, when, once you come to the realization that a, you're probably not going to die. B, you probably won't be homeless and you'll be able to find a way back. Yeah. That can often be like the the thing that helps you take that leap because yeah. you're right. It's it's often we glamorize the bad side to it and go, oh no, we're going to lose all this money, all this time. But it's like, yeah, just give it a crack. You can't be scared of that. <laughs> you, like you can't be scared of that because like, unless you're willing to risk something, you won't win anything. And like I'll have to go watch that because it's a very good point. Mm. And, you know, a lot of it, it's just risk. You know, if you're willing to risk more than everyone else is, that's the only way you're going to do better than everyone else does. Same with work. So, Mate, that, that's epic. I do, I am cautious of time. I really want to touch on these helmets. Yeah, yeah. And I don't even know where to start with these. So we've given the listeners a bit of an explanation of what they, they look like and feel like. Yeah. So it's a beanie helmet. Yeah. Um, what is, so on the outside... If you were seeing someone snowboard past you, you wouldn't be able to tell if they're wearing a beanie or a helmet. It looks like a beanie, right? Nah, yeah. What's underneath that nice looking beanie? Like what are the different components of it? Um, and what sort of makes it as safe as it is? Yeah, so it's, it's, it is in somewhat ways a helmet. Like it'll look like a helmet in a bunch of segments from the outside. There's a, there's a plastic shell. Um, we've got two carbon strips that run over sort of the top, the top center. Um, and they provide some, some tension. They're a tension member effectively, but effectively like the, the outer frame is in like nine or 10 parts with a bunch of things underneath that you won't see on the inside. We've got, um, a non-Newtonian foam set into a regular EPS helmet foam. So on the inside, it seems a bit that way, but we don't run any soft foam like traditional helmets do. We've got no adjusters. There's nothing. Like when you look in the bottom of the helmet, all you see is foam. And because in traditional helmets, those adjusters, those bits of foam, then to make a helmet feel like it fits. Whereas we go, no, we want the frame to fit. So that's why we built it dynamic in such a way that it just clamps onto your head. And so we've had people, like it's, it's like 550 grams. We've had guys go and be like, oh, it's what's, super What's light. a regular helmet? It can be anywhere from like 200 to 650. So we're kind of on the on the upper end. We went testing in New Zealand a few weeks ago. Every rider who put it on goes, oh, that's really light. Mm. Actually, it's not. But the center of gravity is lower. So it fits your head better and you don't feel the weight like you would a traditional helmet. So it bends the rules of what traditional helmets do a lot of the time. Um, and it sits lower. So it's got a, a silicon um, cradle that runs around the, 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 um, the perimeter of the head. And it sits underneath your, it's called an occipital bump. If you touch the back of your head, where your spine goes into the back of your skull, there's a bump. And if you wear hats or beanies, that's where you'd put them. But traditional helmets can't put, you know, protection mechanism down there because if you roll your head back too hard, it can really impede on the neck movement. So what we do is we built this, this um, neck pad, this neck cup. So the entire helmet comes up and it, and it pulls in around the back of your head. And so it does it in such a safe manner, but also it fits away around your head like a hat would or a beanie would where it's around the head, not like a helmet that goes on top of the head. So the entire feeling is different. And it's a you know, really lovely thing. It, it feels much nicer. Um, over the years, we have nothing solid. Because one of my big bugbears with helmets is like when they've got those ear pads. So you're trying to keep your ears warm, but they rub on your ears or you can't run earphones or whatever it is. So what we do is our inner is just straight merino. 
which does the lovely, like keeps you warm when you're cool, keeps you cool when you're warm. So your ear pads are just Merino. So if you get cold ears, just pull it down over the top and suddenly you're totally protected, protected from the elements, but you can still hear everything around you. And we found like when we were doing some testing, that audiology, being able to hear everything around you is actually one of the really big parts of feeling free. It's like being able to see everything, but being able to hear everything. And when something goes down over your ears and it blocks your, your hearing, you feel like you're in a fishbowl. Well, that's but, what I was trying to explain before. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the sensory things that make you feel locked in to that, that helmet. But so all we do is just put some merino on the outside. So your ears are still warm, still covered, but you can still hear everything around you in full 3D, like 360 degrees. And not only is that safer, but it feels so much nicer. Yeah. Well, as, as a snowboarder, I if I'm going to go buy a helmet, I want like I much prefer the feel over the the safety. I don't think I've ever even looked at the safety. Nobody ever does. Rating. And Nobody ever does. Just curious. I'm sure there's people listening that want want me to ask this yeah. question. But what is there a big difference? Is there a really safe helmets and really shit helmets? There is. Because I just assume if they're in a shop, they have been tested. They should be safe. Is that a thing first? Yes, but safe is a scale. Right, you know, like, you know, we do our ANCAP safety ratings with cars and there's like five stars and there's one star. One star, you can still sell the car. It still sits like a minimum okay. value of safety. Yeah. But you can still sell it. Whereas a five star is much better, but, you know, it, it's good. And so, but it's still all available. So in, in the snow sports world, this is the same as bikes, same as motos. We have minimum level requirements to get certifications. So our helmet does the European and the American certifications, which are the two big ones pretty much in snow. Uh, there's a couple more for bike, but they're all effectively the same. Um, and when you pass that, you're legally a helmet. And in fact, you can actually sell helmets that aren't to that standard because there was a company that was a few years ago as well. They go, oh, it's better than nothing, but it's not worse. And you can still sell those things. There's nothing stopping you from selling them. Do they have to say anything on the packet or they just... No, No, they just don't put certified on there. Because I've always even wondered, like you go to Kmart and get yourself a $10 bike helmet. I've always thought like, is that just a piece of shit? Like, is that going to do anything? No, there's a study in the States. They tested like some $8 Target, like Spider-Man helmets. Some of them tested better than like $400 really nice ones. So in helmets, what you pay for is brand, look, quality of build and feeling. You don't pay for safety. Because if you paid for safety, there are some really expensive helmets that would be worth 20 bucks. And there's some really cheap, shitty looking ones that are really expensive. And so that was one of the things that actually drove me from an engineering perspective to do this because like the way that we think about safety, brain safety in particular, there's guys with three boards, three sets of skis, two gloves, sets of goggles that are 400 bucks each, whatever it is, and they'll run one helmet they bought 10 years ago. The thing is flogged. The thing has had it, but they'll just use that same helmet. It's like, well, no, that's not how brain safety works. And so like for us, the mantra was always like, we have to be competing to be the safest in the world. And the drop test results we get, we've never seen better than. But because no other helmet company releases their drop test data, I can't tell you. If I had 50 grand to buy five of every helmet on the market and go test it independently, I'd be able to tell you for sure. The closest we have is there's an insurance company in Sweden, I think, called Folksum, who in 2019 tested a bunch of ski helmets. The Oakley Mod 3 was the best at like 23% better than the standard. Our results just now that we got in yesterday from third-party certifier was up to 30% better. And so like we've got a reasonable idea to go, okay, there's no better helmet in terms of safety than ours, but we don't know that for sure because for some reason, and you can try and you know, hypothesize why they do this, but nobody actually tells you how safe the helmet is and that should be criminal. 
but as as a consumer consumer myself i've never actually even thought about it and, and no. to be honest even cared about it yeah i if like i walked into five ski shops in queenstown for example yeah. I, I just love looking at snow snow yeah feet. love it and i just straight away look for what looks the coolest something maybe a little slim line and then I'll put it on and go, ah, no, this still feels like shit. It makes me feel constrained. That whole fishbowl feeling we were talking about. Not once have I ever asked the person working there, is this safe? Or maybe which one is the safest? Which is scary because it sounds like that's the question that we maybe should be asking. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we, like, for some reason, helmets got left behind. We just put one on. And like, you, like the lime scooters around here, you just put a helmet on, they supply you. So like, what's the point? That thing's probably broken. It probably doesn't do anything for you. And like an ill-fitting helmet is just as bad as not having one at all. You see people cruising around and like there's just too much forehead showing. And it's like, you're going to smack your face and it's going to be useless to you. And it's, it's just like, and that's part of the driver because like, it's going to hurt our friends. It's, it's going to hurt someone. It, it, I'm sure it does every single day. These helmets just aren't as efficient as they should be. And nobody's pushing the standard in safety. Nobody who's taking the bull by the horns going, you know what, guys? It's almost like they had this big agreement to not try. <laughs> and as long as we don't try, we just make the prettiest helmet. And whoever has the prettiest helmet sells the most. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. It's all marketing. All, all of, and there's a lot of gimmicks. Like you go through these websites and they've got all like these cool names for stuff. And oh, it makes you feel safer yeah. when you buy it. But it doesn't make you safer. And they're even they're making stuff up at this point. Like it's the marketing team got a hold of a helmet. Go, okay, this is what we're going to do. Like, like I've been to the factory. Like I've seen them get built and I've been unimpressed. And it's just like, it's criminal. Like anywhere else. And I wrote my engineering thesis on this, my final year thesis on like, we need to score helmets That is better. exactly what Phil Knight did with oh, his Oh, did he? Shoes. Yeah, he might, yeah he, he might have been doing his MBA yeah, or something. He yeah, he wrote a whole thesis just on his yeah. shoe designs. I, maybe I read the book years ago. I was like modeling my life. I mean, not a bad guy to model your life after. But like it's 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 incredible because like in reality with helmets we should have a number of them. Like if you're riding powder one day, so like the, the same reason like the same. If I was teaching someone to ride a snowboard in Japan in the soft snow, going maybe four kilometers an hour, that's the same helmet that Scotty James or Val Gaselli wears, sixteen feet above the coping on a half pipe. And that tell me how that works. Because like they're driving race cars, they should have a full cage set up and I'm in bumper cars. You know, it's entirely different use cases. Kids wear the same helmets that adults do at different speeds, different weights, everything. So in reality, we should be going, well, this helmet's going to be really good for you if you're riding park because you're going to hit stuff really hard. Are there currently better helmets for like park versus riding powder? There would be. You know, maybe helmets that respond better to hitting a pipe rather than yeah. you know, like well, snow or ice. There is in from a, like a science perspective, but it is impossible to tell right now. There is no information in the world for any helmet that can tell you how good a helmet's going to be. And ha brain injuries are ambiguous, and that's part of the reason why. Because you can fall 10 different ways in the same day and every single in incident be different. Different people get hurt different ways, like all these kind of things. But the thing is, like, if you're riding park, you need a helmet that, yeah, if you're hitting a rail or you're hitting ice on a jump, you should have a helmet that can withstand a huge amount of impact force yeah. on a concentrated area. If you're riding powder and you're more likely taking more hits but softer hits, you should have a helmet that's a bit more like a pillow in that it's cushioning for you. Whereas that helmet, like a pillow helmet that's for, for powder, will be useless to you if you're hitting a rail. Or not useless, but in the vicinity. The same way as like you wouldn't ride your park board in powder yeah. and you wouldn't ride a powder board, you know, the XL jumps at Cardi's, you know, like 
that's the way we should, in the end, that's the way we want to be thinking about helmets because that's going to save the most people, CTE, TBI, everything. That's going to be the best way forward. But right now we're not even thinking about safety in helmets. So we've got to start there first. Yeah. Well, even just listening to you talk about that, like as once again, I think I'm your perfect customer. Yeah. Like you, you've already sold a helmet. You can stop selling yeah. it, mate. But like, so, okay, you've answered. So my view of business, right, is you're just solving problems for people. Yeah. You've already solved every problem that I've had with a helmet, right? With Especially <laughs> with the feel side of it because I've tried these on and they feel amazing. Um, but I think there needs to be some sort of education component around that safety rating. So. Like, because yeah. I've, I've learned so much in the last 10 minutes about bloody helmets safety and ratings and so how can you how can you combat that because that's going to sell you more helmets as well if people just simply know that yeah like how do you approach that yeah so i mean there's a lot there because like i know it like we know it it's science we can do this and we can put a whole web page up with people to, to learn but there's got to be a willingness to learn and there's got to be a trust mm. element how do you make now. that cool exactly by building the coolest helmets <laughs> yeah you okay. the best helmet, people nice. start thinking about it in a different way and it's going to look a lot of it like we're taking aim at other manufacturers which we aren't directly but we are indirectly. Like if you make a shit helmet, we're coming for you. Yeah. We're trying to expose you because that should make you better. And if you're doing better than us, great, but show it. Like why aren't you telling us that you're doing 30% better than the standard? Yeah. And so that that's part of it. A lot of it is trust as well. Because like I'm just a dude from Brisbane, Australia. Like I'm not that good on a snowboard. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world to do, but I'm not that good on a snowboard. So my legitimacy in the snow sports world is reasonably low. So at first we have to make people trust the product does what it say, says it does. Yeah. And then when they start liking us, start liking the brand, we can start going, hey guys, did you know this? And we start building that, that piece up around it. Because like it, it's everywhere on, like doesn't matter if it's in cycle industry, snow, bike, moto, it is just filled with people who do not know what they're talking about. Yeah. And they post on, on social media, they post in forums, all that kind of stuff. And we've just got to start building that, hey mate, that's wrong. I'm sorry to tell you that you're wrong, but you're wrong. I know this manufacturer told you this or they inferred this to make you think this. And this is not your fault, but this is actually how it works. And it's just this really slow process of like, we're going to supply the information every time. We're going to be really open. We're going to like open up our own results because like that's the only way to do it is by being transparent. And the only way to be like being transparent makes everyone else question what everyone else is doing because they're not being transparent. And so we have to be the change we want to see in the world in that and just watch it build momentum. And then like the day that I can spend my entire day just talking about helmet safety and brain safety and saving lives is a really damn good day. So that's the dream is to get there. You've just also explained the nutrition world, especially in action and adventure sports. Same thing. Yeah. Like I, I love nutrition with a passion, but I am so glad I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian because they just must hear some absolute heinous shit. Like yeah. clients coming in saying, I'm on, I've heard this thing on Instagram and cause everyone eats, right? So everyone's yeah. got an opinion on that. Oh. And so it's almost, yeah, before you educate them, you have to undo all the crap they've heard through marketing and other yeah. brands and stuff. And it sounds like a very similar thing happening with helmets yeah and that's, it like suits a lot of people crazy. with misinformation you know like yeah. red bull gives you wings dope just like <laughs> why are we having anything else like why are we drinking water yeah. It, yeah it's just one of those things that just and, and like a lot of people just like not misinform themselves but like in nutrition and, and and sports science all that kind of thing they go oh well i did a bunch of squats this year and <laughs> now my legs don't burn snowboarding yeah. so i'm just going to keep squatting yeah. <laughs> so, brother your hamstrings are cooked your knees are going to blow yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you know it's one of these things that it, it's like yeah. a real it has to be a yep. real tempered you don't want to come in and tell them they're wrong you go hey man i think you can do better this way and it Absolutely. it's tough yeah but worthwhile sure. mm. just on the education part i 
when I first heard about this, you mentioned non-Newtonium. Yeah, Newtonium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Non-Newtonium fluid or material. Um, when I first found out about that, I was just obsessed. I YouTubed all these videos on how you can make it at home. Yeah, like, yeah. I told my mom and she was like, oh, I want to make this for my year three kids. And <laughs> like, can you just explain to the listeners what the helmet's actually made of? Because that's probably the biggest, would you say the biggest game changing part of the helmet or is it just one of the components? One of the components too. Yeah, yeah. Originally, we were trying to build the whole helmet out of non-Newtonian materials. One, we, right. we realized that, that was nearly impossible. It would have made a really heavy helmet but we still have components of it within the helmet now. So it's a really valuable material. We just couldn't build an entire helmet out of it. So non-Newtonian materials are anything that's, that has um, a non-linear viscosity, pretty much. So starts off soft, turns hard when you hit it. It's like Ublek, that, that, that experiment you do at school, you know, it's just cornstarch and water. But just it, effectively the molecules are really big in any of these things. And so when they're, you know, they're free to move across each other, but then when you impact it, they bind up because of the friction of the large molecules. And there's non-Newtonian materials that are shear thinning as well. So like I think tomato sauce and blood is shear thinning. So the more more force you put on it, the, the lighter it gets. Tomato sauce? Interesting. But ours is shear thickening. So like it starts off reasonably soft and the harder you impact it, the harder it gets. And that allows us to, in part of our safety mechanism is a dual stage liner. So effectively what it does is we use a regular foam. And the thing about um, sort of static... Um, foams is they're good at one really good um, impact. So they're designed for a particular impact. They're really good there. But the Newtonian ones are more dynamic than that. So we add two materials in. So we're good at a, a larger range of impacts rather than just the one where one material can be good at. And that's why we do it. That's fascinating. So how have you actually, you said you initially just tried to line the beanie. Yeah. How has that changed? In So how many um, how many versions have you had of this beanie? Oh, so we're at V2 of production. V2, yep. But I would say that we've probably been through like 200, 300 prototypes of different, wow. probably more in earnest, more. And how have you distributed that that material in this latest edition of the helmet? What does it sort of look like? So effectively when you open up the inside of the, the unit, it's mostly black EPS foam, which is the extent, expanded polystyrene. Yeah. Um, mostly black, but it's got a bunch of little red dots in it. And what they are, they're the non-Newtonian pads. So they sit about 10 millimeters into the foam and they sit sort of uh, everywhere in the helmet and fit nice and close to the head. So there's, pro- I think there's probably about 20 or 21 units in there, I think. And that's how they sit. They, they, they make up probably a quarter of the total foam matrix of the helmet, the, the, the um, compression liner. And they do that in sort of strategic areas that allow it to you know, perform the way it needs to. Damn, that is so cool. And so that's just one of the main contributors to why you can mold it, you can shape it. It's such a, what's the word you're just, you describe to dynamic is what dy- we say. Dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even just like, I'm thinking if you're going to pack it in your suitcase, like it's just going to be so much easier to yeah. take a helmet. Like I think of taking a helmet on a flight and you've, I'd put it on the outside and yeah. max into everyone and everything. And, exactly. But man, that's, that is really freaking cool. Yeah. Oh, it, it makes me think back to when I was doing my masters at UQ um, there was a lot of research going on in concussions at the time. Yeah. Um, I don't know too much about concussions and headwear, but I remember there was a lot of discussions around, like if, as you were saying, if the headwear is not fitted properly, if it's loose on the head, it can actually amplify the concussion that yeah. can come from falls and stuff. Like, is that lower center center of gravity in yours going to help that? Do you think? Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And do you know much about that with your helmet? Have you tested it with that sort of stuff? Or? Yeah, I mean, it just all comes down to that those drop test results, like what we were talking about before, which is that, that, that safe, straight safety, like the way it fits. Yeah, right. But in the real world, you want a helmet that fits. And most helmets, bike helmets, snow helmets, they have got those adjusters at the back where you yeah. click up yeah. and the soft foam too. And all that is designed to do is make it feel like it fits when it's on your head. Huh. A lot of time, like when you put a helmet on, you, you adjust the back thing. You can slip your fingers up between your head and your, and your helmet. And that's air gap that's that so just true. shouldn't be there. Yeah. It means the helmet doesn't fit. And so you, what you <laughs> want is the protection mechanism to be as close to your head because there is as little room for something to go wrong. Because when you're you know, hurling towards the ground, you want that thing to stay on your head exactly the way it should be. And any degree of freedom within that is worse. And like from a, a swing weight perspective, the further a mass is away from the center of gravity of a, of a thing, the more force it puts on. So if, you know, say you've got 10 or 15 mil, that's much more swing weight than what you know, the helmet should be. And the reason for that is, is because rigid helmets, everybody's head shape is different. You can be, so there's, there's scientifically, there's three different, you know, um, sort of not generic head shapes, but the, the origins of, so there's the Asian, the African and the Caucasian, all three of them are different by sort of by nature. And everybody in the world has some mix of those, but every head shape is new, unique. Every, like, um, we had a bunch of mates in here one time. We all had 56 centimeters heads, all vaguely Caucasian. Every helmet was different on every person fit differently. So everybody's head shape is different. And, but when you design a helmet, a rigid helmet at least, you can only design it to that CAD head form that you have at the time. So unless you have that head shape perfect, which you won't. Which it never happens. Like, exactly, never happens. Even just like with rental helmets. That, like you go to a rental shop and they have oh, all the exact same helmet and there's yeah. a thousand different people walking through from different countries. And they go, yeah, chuck it on. It's just like, Good luck. Yeah, exactly. And that's just not how helmets work. That and so when we mind. built this one, it was like, it has to fit everybody perfectly. Yeah. And that's why the dynamic frame was important. The beanie thing was important that it just, like you can buy it online. It shows up, it fits. That's the point. Mate, I, I'm just bloody fascinated about this. Moment. And <laughs> I, we can talk about this all day. Um, I am very cautious of time. Um, so so where, where's next? Like, are we sticking in the snow sport space or, you know, you've got experience in, in motocross and like bikes. Like, is there any scope for that sort of thing or where, where are we going from here? Yeah, um, everything. You know, we want to be the people that protect the brains the best anywhere in the world. And we were like where we see it, you know, there's a lot of in medical industry as well. Kids with epilepsy, kids with autism, you know, doctors are sending them to school with boxing helmets on, you know, and like not only is it totally useless for the purpose, but the poor kids, you know, like, and so we've got this wonderful opportunity to build something that's beautiful for them. You know, we want to get to a point where the helmets are so cool that other kids want to wear it. You know, chuck your favorite footy team or Barbie or SpongeBob if kids are still watching SpongeBob, you know, put all those so that the helmet is so cool that kids want to wear it. But of course, um, snow first, snow is where our heart and our root is, but, um, cycle as well, like a big mountain biker getting into cycle. Cause that's also a totally underserved market in terms of what we're doing. Um, and yeah, moto from there, everything. We just want to be the best brain protection company in the world. Oh, that is so exciting. I just, yeah, I, when you were saying you need to make it cool, the only thing I can think of is when you see the Red Bull guys in the park, yeah. you see the Red Bull helmet oh, and you're just frothy. chilling in the chairlift and you see them coming yeah. down. So you just sort of lock onto them and you're just thinking, you're like, what are they about to do? They're going to bust a tan for sure. You're going to have that soon, mate, with anti-helmets. You're, you're going to see the little anti-logo and go, yeah, well, I mean, that's the whole, they know what's like, up. Getting a monster helmet or a Red Bull helmet on an athlete would just be the dream. I don't know, that's how you know you've, you've, 
netted a big fish in terms of athletes is like you get one of those guys. On. You're going to be and sewing in Red Bull into those beanies, mate. That's well, that's the beauty be of it is they're totally customizable. Yeah. You know, like whatever, you know, we can work with whatever brand, whatever company, you know, we'll get some flow ones in there. Yeah. So it, that's a really fun part of what we do. Yeah. That's sick. And for those people who are just sitting there frothing, wishing they can get their hands on one, um, firstly, can they? Are you currently selling them? Are they available online or where are we at with that sort of? Not right now. So they're in production right now um, in, was it October? November. So November, November now. Um, they'll be finished production in the next couple of weeks. They'll be in America mid-December, America and Europe mid-December. Um, depending on when this podcast comes out though, the ideal case is they'll all be sold out. Um, but antiordinary.co is the best place to get them. So we'll, we're just selling them online, get them if you want them, but it's a pretty limited release this year. So we'll probably sell out reasonably quickly. So if you want one, send me an email. But other than that, um, that's the way you get them. That's fantastic, mate. Um, mate, you are honestly one of my like biggest business inspirations. <laughs> and whenever we have these chats, I just feel like I want to run home and just start working on my business and, and get it to the stage where you've got yours because we're sitting here in your office and yeah, it's just a very inspiring environment, mate. So you should be so stoked of what you've created. Um, and yeah, as Rob mentioned, if you guys want any more details, jump on the website, antiordinary.co That's it. Uh, and your Instagram. What's your Instagram handle? Antiordinary.co. Oh, same thing? Consistent. Beautiful. Uh, mate, I can't wait to get my hands on one one day, and I know the listeners will be thinking the exact same thing. So, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again for the chat. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Flow Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat and found loads of value that you can use to fuel more flow state in your life. If you did enjoy the content and want to support the podcast, don't forget to give it a five-star rating, leave a review, or even better, share it to a mate, post it up on your Instagram story, and tag Flow Performance Podcast. We really do appreciate any support in getting this content out into the world. So thanks again for tuning in and we will catch you again next week.